So welcome back to the part two of the podcast on energy perspectives. And Eirik Varnes, he, the chief economist in Statoil, is back in the studio after the coffee break. And uh, we go straight on to economic growth, Eirik. Uh, how are we looking at economic growth in the various scenarios? Well, in all scenarios, um, there will be economic growth. We believe that the global GDP will grow, uh, but... Uh, differently so. Uh, one main component of all economic growth is uh, population growth. Uh, and we follow the UN population forecasts uh, saying that uh, there will be about 2.4 billion more people on Earth in, in 2050 than today. That means that the population grows uh, gradually less, but it grows on average by slightly less than 1% per year. So that contributes in itself to, to economic growth. Uh, then on top of that, you have a productivity development uh, that differs significantly between the scenarios, uh, both in terms of how efficiently we, we invest in capital and how efficiently we use capital and labor to develop economic growth. And that varies between one point, so the total economic growth varies between 1.9 and 2.6% on average between the scenarios, lowest in rivalry uh, for many reasons, and, and uh, on average highest in renewal, which is the two degree consistent scenario. The result of that is that uh, the global economy by 2050 is uh, between double and 2.6 times as large as it is today. So uh, population uh, growth is a main contributor. Any specific countries or regions you would mention specifically on the economic growth? Asia, obviously, uh, is a a candidate. Uh, China. Yeah, def- definitely. On the, I mean, in general, what we what we have here is uh, is emerging economies that are catching up with uh, the the stable uh, industrialized countries in in uh, the OECD area, meaning that the, the the per capita growth, the productivity growth, is highest in the emerging economies, and some countries in Asia stand out. Uh, in addition, we have the countries which have a, a potential for a large population growth. Um, and in that respect, India becomes uh, gradually more important, while China's population probably has uh, stabilized. Um, so India's uh, average economic growth will be much higher over the next uh, 35 years than China's, but it starts at a much lower level in terms of level of GDP. Uh, one thing that also stands out is that uh, Africa will probably tw- be twice as many people. They will double in size from 1 to 2 billion people by 2050. Uh, in terms of global GDP, it's not that important because Africa is... Uh, is very poor. So even if they have a high GDP growth on average, they don't reach up to average uh, economic levels by 2050, unfortunately. Following on on the oil price expectations that we provided on our annual report and at our capital markets update in February, what are the main moving parts short and, and, and longer term? Well, the moving parts on the short term is the ones that we have uh, gotten used to to think about over the last years. It's uh, it's the balance between uh, the shale development on the one hand, shale oil in the, in the United States in particular, and then OPEC behavior and OPEC output uh, on the other hand, and uh, and how that plays in with demand growth. We will have demand growth, more than one million barrels per day in growth every year over the next four or five years. Um, and then you have the storage situation, which is uh, which. Is, so those are the four sort of uh, interacting factors that will affect the price short term and, and uh, over the medium term. Um, there is uh, a lot of oil in storage at the moment. There is a fear that uh, that even if OPEC agree, uh, agreed to to constrain output over the next nine months, that the 
that the, any price impact there will have the consequence that shale oil uh, grows faster uh, and then you'll have a negative impact on the price. So, so that's, that's the interplay. Over time, uh, due to decline rates and the fact that uh, investments have been very low, investments in new projects, over time there will be, a, most, most of us believe in a tightening of the market uh, going forward. Um, over time also what is important is that uh, sort of on the, in, in a slightly longer term we need a price that is sufficiently high to ensure profitability not only on the break-even price of projects once you make the decision but it, but it has to be profitable throughout the value chain that means you have to have a price that is sufficiently high to to finance exploration it has to be sufficiently high to finance all the costs we have before the investment decision uh, it has to be sufficiently high to finance all corporate costs over time, and it also has to be sufficiently high to allow profitability in the supply chain among our suppliers. And that is not the case at the moment. So those are the things that uh, that will lift the price. And then, of course, the long-term cost levels is, is really uncertain. I think that economic growth and oil price uh, development and expectations is two topics that is uh, given extensive uh, space in the media, and, and it's a lot of debate um, but moving to the, the third candidate, uh, energy intensity is also being debated. So what about energy intensity going forward? Yeah, it, it is debated, but I think also to some extent there hasn't been enough focus on the importance of global energy efficiency improvements in order to be able to deliver a sustainable development. Uh, we ha in order to, to deliver on the two degree target or CO2 emission reductions that matters, even, even if they're not coming down sufficiently high, uh, we will have to see a much clearer decoupling between global GDP growth on the one hand and energy demand on the other. And that requires an energy intensity improvement that is much higher, energy efficiency improvement that is much higher than what we've seen historically. Over the last 25 years, the global energy efficiency has improved by slightly less than 1% per year. So energy demand has grown, but not as much as global GDP. Unfortunately, that has been better over the last couple of years than on average over, the, over the, this period. But going forward, we need much higher. In the renewal scenario, where we are consistent with the two-degree target, we need three times that energy efficiency improvement. That means that in spite of people becoming richer, in spite of increasing their demand for goods, services, and activities that require energy, we will not use more energy. That's one of the key factors. If the energy intensity improvement does not improve, does not become faster than what it has been historically, then energy demand in 2050 will be twice as high as what we have in our scenario. So that shows some of the huge challenge here. So the speed of the development is moving too slow. Uh, cars become more energy efficient, houses become more energy efficient, but the speed of the changes you think it's too slow? It's too slow, and, uh, and especially when you take into account the, the fact that the number of cars increase. So even if, the, even if each car becomes more efficient, then the number of cars increase. Over the last 15 years, the number of cars in India and China alone has increased by 800 million. So, so the fleet increases, the number of houses increase. Some houses become more energy efficient because they're new, but we still live in all the old houses, right? So, so the energy efficiency improvement in, in the Norwegian household sector, for instance, is not fantastic. Um, so, so that's, and all that has to change. We, ha we have to uh, 
be able to develop the economy, build new cities in Asia or in other parts of the emerging economies, which are built differently so that we require less energy. We, ha we can live in a city without having as much requirements to transport, as an example. Uh, the, the, the capital equipment we use, either it's cars or railroads or uh, aircraft, have, they have to become much more efficient so that we can drive an increasing number of miles in total or kilometers in total, but not use more energy. Moving to technology development, uh, how would you describe the role of technology going forward, Eddie? Well, the role of technology is crucial in determining, uh, determining our future um, and delivering on energy efficiency, for instance. Uh, we also need a lot of technology development in, in uh, ensuring that uh, we can integrate renewables with other uh, sources of electricity in electricity markets. Uh, we need a lot of digitalization and, and technology development to ensure energy efficient solutions, demand management. Uh, we need a lot of technology to be, make sure that we are able to produce enough oil and gas going forward. Because in all these scenarios, we need much oil and gas, a lot of oil and gas from new sources, new resources. Uh, and some of that has to come from reservoirs that are far away, very deep, very difficult to, to extract anything from. So we need um, technology development to ensure that the, the carbon uh, footprint of our remaining fossil fuels become lower, much lower than what it is, uh, either through uh, you know, transforming gas into hydrogen, uh, combine that with carbon capture and storage on remaining fossil fuels uh, burning combustion places. So there's a lot of technology here that has to develop. And coming from uh, operations on the NCS, I know that we need uh, more energy efficient turbines as well. They, they cover 79% of the emissions on the NCS. But um, talking about the NCS and, and the fact that we actually pay uh, CO2 taxes, um, and Stutter is prom promoting effective price on carbon around the world. So why is it so important that we succeed with the, uh, the two degree scenario and that this is an important measure? Well, first, first of all, I guess, uh, uh, so the main principle is that if there's something you don't want, you, you have to put a price on it. And in, in the climate discussion, the things that we don't want is greenhouse gas emissions. So we need a price on it. Incentivizing more energy efficient production. Yes, uh, we, so we need, a, we need a, a price on carbon to incentivize energy efficiency. Uh, we need a price on carbon to move people out of the most carbon intensive fossil fuels like coal and into something that is less carbon intensive, whether it's gas or renewables. Uh, we, need more, we, we need a price to stimulate the consumers in China and the United States and elsewhere to buy, to buy more efficient cars. Uh, we need a carbon price across the globe. Not exactly, it doesn't have to be exactly the same, but there must be some kind of mechanism that prices a carbon in order to avoid inefficient uh, and costly sub-optimization, carbon leakage, movement of industry from Europe to China, as we have experienced over the last 25 years, and then the carbon emissions are even, uh, even higher than what they would have been if they had been in Europe. Um, we can't afford to waste too much money. So if we don't have a carbon price, we have get inefficient solutions, and that money that we waste should have been used to find new technological solutions. And finally, we, we need a price on carbon it's, in order to establish a source of, sort of a sustainable source of revenue for carbon capture projects. It's, the carbon price is the only source of revenue for a carbon capture project. So all those reasons are why, are why we need a price on carbon. 
There's a lot of focus on the electrification of transportation, and in Norway, the Tesla has become a household name. And um, <clears throat> but in the rest of the world, I think we see see at least some some uh, some variances around this. And and France now is selling more electric cars than Norway. Uh, how would you describe the, the the pace of change in this electrification of transportation? Well, the, yeah, the, I mean, the pace of change is large, um, mainly because it's so small yet. Uh, and France, being 10 times as many people as Norway, should buy more electric vehicles than Norway. Um, the electric uh, vehicles, the, the development there is, is uh, really rapid, both in terms of, of um, battery costs coming down, in terms of number of models increasing, uh, Tesla is important in Norway, but uh, but it's uh, it's when the big oil big car producers change their fleet that it will start to matter. Um, the problem is that it's still very tiny. You can hardly see it on on the statistics of global car sales, and it's not it's not close to keeping up with the increase in the car fleet. So I mean, it, it, we 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 sell about eighty million cars every year globally, and less than one percent of that is electric. So, so there's still a lot to go. Fortunately, uh, there is potential for this to really take uh, take, uh, take a place once once the cars are competitive with combustion engines without subsidies. Uh, in addition, we'll get some help from the fact that uh, that the combustion engine cars will also become more much more efficient. Uh, so, uh, but there is a potential for rapid electrification of transport, and and especially the part of transport that is cars, light duty vehicles, motorcycles, and cars. If that happens, uh, oil demand growth will slow down. And at some point, oil demand growth will start to become negative. But that depends also on the development of the rest of the transportation sector, whether it's aircraft or ships or, or uh, large trucks, uh, and also the, all the other uses where we actually use oil, like in the petrochemical industry. Are there other disruptive technology and potential impacts uh, that could hit us? Definitely, especially when we look uh, decades ahead. Um, there, there are potential black swans out there, or uh, and even swans we don't know the color of on the, the the unknown unknowns. Um, I think it, if if I'm to sort of point that the some of the most most important potentially changes that of course on the technology side on energy energy supply i mean cold fusion uh, is one of them it, ha it has always been 40 years ahead of us whether we're talking about 1970 or now uh, if that happens most of the things that we've written about in this report will have to change um, on the consumer behavior side i think uh, if if future groups of consumers in particular in the emerging economies have a very different behavioral pattern consumption pattern priorities than we have when they become as rich as we are now, then we might have a very different link between growth on the one hand and energy demand on the other. We don't see signals of that yet, but that's, that's one of the ones. Of course, if we, if we see more rapid uh, climate changes, signals of climate changes, weather events, extreme weather and so on, also the, uh, a black swan, a swan could be uh, more rapid political action than what we have seen. And, and that would then move us from something that potentially is the rivalry scenario more rapidly towards the renewal scenario than, than at some point. And then the transition will be much more challenging. 
What about geopolitics, regional conflicts and protectionism, uh, Eric? Uh, how, how would you describe these topics in our energy perspectives? Well, they play an important part in, in, uh, in the rivalry scenario. Uh, it is, a, it is a, a part of the world today that, you know, it, it's, we're not in complete agreement across the globe on what's important. We've, we've seen increasing tendencies towards nationalism, protectionism, bigger than neighbor policies. We don't trust each other. We don't trade freely with technology. We have sanctions on several economies in the world, Russia being one, North Korea being another. Uh, there's a lot of conflict in the Middle East, rising as we speak between uh, former allies. Um, we have the EU struggling with uh, keeping countries within the, the group. Uh, and we have, uh, we have uh, newly elected presidents that, uh, that uh, change the position of an important country relative to an international agreement that was rapidly ratified, the Paris Agreement last year. So there's a lot of uncertainty. And there's a lot of com potential conflict. It could be energy, can be resources, it could be water going forward that where there's conflict. If that happens, uh, the economy will probably grow slower because uh, technology development will go slower and we'll have more inefficient solutions. But on the other hand, our ability also to solve the common challenges being energy security or energy efficiency or climate emissions will also be much lower. And that's the situation we've described in a rivalry scenario. It's not a scenario anybody hopes for. But uh, we wouldn't be responsible if we didn't cater for the possibility that we might actually be going in that direction. And then it's about developing robust strategies across these scenarios. So before we round off, Eric, you have been uh, experiencing a lot, uh, practicing, uh, preparing for roadshows, traveling around the world, representing Statoil in debates, presenting these uh, reports over the years. What is your key learnings well I think uh, I think a, a key learning point is that it is important to to travel to meet uh, people with different perspectives uh, to meet with different actors that are placed in different uh, roles and situations because the perspectives the way we look at the, the future tends to depend on where you're sitting so the the view you have looking forward is very much dependent on where you're sitting uh, the climate and energy policy debate is really different in Norway and Europe compared to what it is in the rest of the world. Uh, the importance of energy has a different connotation in different countries. Uh, on the other hand, also what I experience is that the things that we're doing, the, thing, the, the experiences that we have been through in Norway over the, in, on these issues over the last 20, 25 years has importance elsewhere. There are learning points across the globe. Uh, I often say that if if every country had had the Norwegian energy and climate policies, we would be discussing climate in a very different way, because then we would have policies that, at least in some dimensions, work. Great, uh, Eric, and thank you, and uh, good luck with uh, presenting the report and taking part in the debate, shaping the future of energy. Thank you. Mm -hmm.